Hi, everyone. Welcome to Danger in Delaware. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. This podcast reviews tragic events that have happened in Delaware, from crime to natural disasters and everything in between. I have lived in both the most southern part of Delaware and the most northern. I know the differences between the two very distinct yet unified sections of the state. In reviewing ideas about upcoming episodes, though, I have found that some of these tragedies transcend just Delaware. In one event, three additional states were involved. In another, events took place across two states, beginning in Delaware, then traveling into Maryland. Thinking back to events in my life, there are tragedies that may have started in either Delaware or Maryland, but ended in the other state. As such, within the next few days, I will be changing the name of the podcast to Danger on Delmarva. Yes, we say on. Um, Delmarva is a peninsula. So I tried to keep it as in, but it just didn't sound right. So this podcast does reflect my personal interest in true crime and disasters and the exploration of how an event occurred. I mean, no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this podcast through available sources from the internet, YouTube, and any other documentaries available. In some cases, personal observations about the area or knowledge about certain areas may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I have gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee that everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays. Example, there are further updates after the publication of this podcast. Also, as I do live so close to many of these locations and feel certain connections, usually I will share my opinion. In this particular case, I feel that it is important as the understanding of how things like fatigue can affect a person are better understood now than it was at the time. So to set the scene, it's in October. The World Series is on everyone's mind with anticipation of many local fans tuning into a key game, or better yet, seeing it live at the stadium. Suspense is on the rise, and you can feel the excitement in the air. Kids are outside playing baseball. Some are rushing to get any chores done so that they won't miss a minute of the game. Parents are rushing home from work, planning on eating in front of their TVs as their team bids for a world title. You're outside, trying to get the grass cut before the game starts. Then it happens. The ground shakes. Your windows break. You look around, and other people that are outside either freeze in shock or run in fear. At this point of the story, you may be saying to yourself, or out loud, I don't know how you talk to yourself, but anyway, you may be saying, I thought this was about Delaware, not California. If you're a sports fan or follow information on natural disasters, you would be justified if you were to think that I'm referring to the October 17th, 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, 
that took place during the World Series game between the Oakland A's and San Francisco Giants, a battle in the Bay, two local teams going against each other. On live TV, people saw the camera shake, an announcer trying to get the words out that there appeared to have been an earthquake, only for his words to be cut off. Outside of the stadium, an overpass had collapsed, trapping cars beneath it. In the aftermath of that catastrophe, it's thought that the World Series saved people. Many people were not as work as they left early to watch the game. Because so many people had left work early, there weren't as many cars on the roads at that time. Rush hour had actually happened early that day. If not for the sake of the World Series scheduling and that both teams were from the Bay Area, there would have been more people on the roads trapping even more people. But no, I'm not referring to that. For just another minute, let's walk down another little path, and I promise you that all of the pieces will tie together. On many other days, the death of someone like Mother Teresa would have been at the top of the world news, listing all of her good deeds. But coincidentally, a woman who had once been filmed together with her being interviewed was killed in a car crash along with her boyfriend in Paris. Princess Diana had died. While many people think of Amelia Earhart as the pioneer of female aviators, if not for one event, Harriet Quimby would have been hailed as the queen. She was the first woman to obtain a pilot's license in the U.S. and later was the first woman to cross the English Channel. The date of her epic feat? April 16, 1912 the day after the Titanic sank. So the event that I'm going to talk to you about today happened on a night almost exactly nine years prior to the Bay Area earthquake that disrupted a World Series in a place almost as far as you can go, spanning from one coast to the other. On October 21st, 1980, many people in the Mid-Atlantic region were going to be tuning in to our World Series game. Living in Delaware, we learned to adopt other city sports teams. Throughout my life, I've rooted for Baltimore Orioles, the Baltimore Colts, and a little less wholeheartedly, the Phillies and the Eagles from Philadelphia. But I live in southern Delaware for most of my life. For the most part, the people that I know tend to root for Baltimore teams. But I can in no way say that it's 100% true for everyone that lives in the lower two counties. My nephew loved the Eagles, but I also still consider the Colts my team, even though I woke up one morning to see a Mayflower truck on the news with my dad facing the TV in anger. And if I ever do expand the podcast a little bit more, who knows, I might cover this event. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Colts and Mayflower truck, and you'll get the idea. When I lived in the northernmost county of Delaware, Newcastle County, by the vast majority, the people that I knew rooted for the Philadelphia teams, including the Philadelphia Phillies. It was a very short car ride to that city. But on that night in 1980, the World Series would be the last thing on the minds of thousands of people in Delaware. At 6.30 Eastern Time on October 21st, 1980, the ground shook in northern Delaware. And while Delaware 
does get a handful of earthquakes every now and then, usually you can barely feel them. The first one that I remember, I actually thought it was a train that was going by that was a little bit heavier than normal. So definitely nothing comparable to those in California. But getting back to 1980, it was not an earthquake. About two hours before the start of the World Series game, the Amico plant in Newcastle, Delaware exploded. The percussion could be felt from Wilmington to close to the Pennsylvania border, about 15 miles. Windows were blown out on a store up to six miles away from a direct quote from an article published on UPI archives. I didn't know what it was at all, said Dick Schneider, owner of a food market about two miles from the plant. I saw the black cloud and the flames were shooting very, very high in the air. There was a massive explosion and there was a huge concussion that followed it and it blew out all of the windows in the front of my store. Thank God that they didn't blow in, they blew out. Nobody in the store was hurt at all. Fire crews from not only different cities, but from different states responded. Located near many borders, crews from not only cities in Delaware, but also Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey responded. It took around 11 hours to get the blaze under control. Thousands of people were evacuated as a precaution, as there was a danger to other propylene containers causing yet another blast, toxic fumes were also a possibility. It had not been immediately known how many people had perished. There were discrepancies early on that seven had died, but there were still a number of workers unaccounted for. The blast knocked out the water supply and the electricity making an already difficult task seem impossible. It took 45 minutes to be able to access water. Later, the discrepancy regarding the number of those killed was worked out, with five dying that day and another succumbing to his injuries later. Approximately 29 were injured. Another Amico worker, though not working at the time, saw the explosion occur and the flames from his car, and he suffered a mild heart attack. Corporal Barry Beck of the Delaware State Police said the explosion occurred in the processing area, that it spread to the finishing area of the plant and ignited several fires north of the plant in a marsh near Dobbinsville. The scene that I said earlier was influenced by an article that I read. In this article, Wally Pope who later became the president of the Delaware City Fire Company Number no. 1, was a child in 1980. He had been outside playing wiffle ball when the explosion occurred. And while he, his friend, and his friend's father tried to go down Route 9, all the traffic was stopped. He said, I remember just hearing the stories about how they placed our fire truck inside the plant. At one time, they said they told everybody to evacuate the area. They left the truck there running, and then they all went running. I've heard sayings that no accident happens just because of one reason, that it's usually caused by a series of smaller events. So first, I think we need to explore what this plant actually did. The plant was used in the production of polypropylene. And I think the next question then is, what is polypropylene? It's also known as polypropene 
and it's a thermoplastic polymer used in a wide variety of applications. It is produced via chain growth polymerization from the monomer propylene. And to many of us, I think that just seems as clear as mud. And thank you, Wikipedia. The explosion occurred as the propylene was being unloaded from the railroad tanker cars. A deputy state fire marshal, Richard Lynch, made what I think many would find a controversial statement, myself included. He blames the World Series. The real problem, and you'll never prove it, was the World Series. There were so many people who didn't want to be there, I'll bet someone just forgot to do something. This statement is not based on fact, and he actually says so. While it would be easy to judge one or more workers at the plant as being distracted by the thought of a first World Series victory by a local team, these were professionals who knew the importance of being precise. And while some other factors may come into play, I don't think I'll ever be convinced that the thought of a baseball game would make people forget key steps. So just as Lynch's opinion is just that, an opinion, so is mine. Another deputy fire marshal, Daniel Kiley, had a few more thoughts on the event. Thoughts that have been reinforced with time as the impact of fatigue has been studied in many industrial areas. Still, to inject a further two cents, I don't necessarily like the wording of this quote, and I'll explain in a moment. He said that it was caused by carelessness when workers on forced overtime loosened four bolts holding a critical valve to a three-inch pipeline. To further quote from a News Journal article, that pipeline was connected to a block-long reactor vessel. Inside that reactor, gases condensed into liquid form. So maybe I'm a little sensitive, but I don't like the use of the word carelessness when the person or persons who did this may or may not be around to defend themselves. Also, the forced overtime can decrease morale and increase fatigue. I think that we are more aware of those impacts now. In many transportation industries, such as jobs that require a CDL, or commercial driver's license, as well as pilots, the number of hours that can be worked in a day are limited. Also, many times, either local ordinances or company policy ensures that there is enough time for ample rest. While it may not be known what the exact frame of mind for each employee was, there had to be some that were feeling fatigued. The men did not live in a vacuum. They had other responsibilities, whether it be to their families or schooling or whatever other endeavors that they may have had outside of work. While their jobs were detailed-oriented, they could not be expected to live only to work. They had to have other areas of interest and reasons to make the job and its pay worthwhile. In addition, as time has gone by, the importance of work-home balance has become more present in the minds of employers, recognizing that their employees exist for more than just coming to work. So, to get back to the actual information and not just my opinions. I will be relying on the chain of events as reported by the News Journal in Delaware. Some parts will be direct quotes as it provides the most comprehensive details. In order to access the newspaper, I did need to su subscribe to newspapers.com 
So if you do want to read the articles, you may need to either use the free trial or purchase access. I will include information regarding which articles I used in the description of the podcast. For those that are currently available online, I will leave the direct link. For those that are part of newspapers.com, I will leave the date and the title of the article. So from what could be gleaned, the reactor was still running. The workers helping offload the propylene from the tanker apparently either did not know this or this was common practice. I personally doubt that they would try to repair or clean the pipe while the reactor was on without either previously doing so or having other precautions in place. At least that's what I would do. However, shutting down the reactor for any amount of time costs production time. And as we can see in some subsequent aftermath, it's a pattern that money is the bottom line. While some may consider this an opinion as well, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence to back this up. In order to clean the valve, the workers removed the valve cover, but they also removed what was securing the plate, the flange. The valve should not have been taken apart altogether. Leaving the flange on would have allowed the workers to check whether or not the valve was opened. With that loosened, as the gas flowed, it escaped slowly at first, but then when reaching the valve with no cover, the force behind the escape blew. According to Deputy State Fire Marshal Robert Montgomery, the plate shot out like a shell, finally landing 27 feet away from the reactor. 10,000 gallons of gases leaked from the reactor. Leaked might be an understatement. Like he said, it shot from the pipeline. It created a cloud above the ground at six feet and it was spreading. At this time, the standard operating procedure was to sound an alarm and evacuate. Nothing else, just run. However, some of the workers tried to access fire hoses and other equipment to fight the growing cloud. This may have worked if it was a slow leak. This was anything but. In about a two-minute time frame, the alarm was sounded, but some of the men went to the first floor to get fire hoses to cool down the reactor. Walter Mateja was attempting to reach the control room, but the explosion occurred. The force blew glass into his liver. It is estimated that if all the workers had run, when this event first occurred, they may have been injured, but they could have lived. An anonymous supervisor at the plant said that the leaks were commonplace and they could usually fight it. Recalling a previous close call, he said, but we got lucky on that one. I said before that there is usually no one cause of an accident. The reactor was not shut down. The valve was removed altogether when it should not have been, preventing a safety check. The alarm was rung, but many chose to stay to fight the gas cloud. Something was needed to set the explosion off, and it is speculated that a spark from the fire equipment being drugged across the floor was that ignition. All of this took only a short time. Five men were dead, with well over 20 injured, and another man later dying. During the investigation, Amico and some of its employees were less than cooperative. 
some of the stories changed two or three times from each employee. Investigators said that while shutting down the reactor would have cost money, it should have been done as a fundamental safety precaution. So here are some things that were mentioned in the articles, things that could have been done but weren't. There was no mechanism to block the valve from the reactor. Amazingly enough, there was no emergency system to cool down the reactor, such as something to flood it with water. Those who were working there did not evacuate immediately, or at least not all of them. It seemed like the workers were trying to flood the reactor. Fire equipment was in another room, so for any emergency, it was not easily reached. Plus, the coupling, which is really like a joiner, was not immediately available. So this added valuable time that it took to get the fire equipment. So yes, even though the standard operating procedure was to evacuate, if this equipment was needed in any other emergency, it would have been harder to get to. There was also no automatic flooding of the reactor or depressurization in an emergency. So Amico had a history to this point of violating safety protocols. In 1979, just a year before this, there was an explosion at a Texas plant when gases escaped from a pump that was being worked on. Amico also failed to issue work permits. I'm now going to refer to one, one of the many engineering disaster shows that I watch. While I cannot remember exactly which documentaries I watched for this next incident, I know I've watched more than one about this. On an oil rig in the North Sea, workers did not follow the work order protocol. There is a ticket or a permit or work order, depending on what you want to call it, that is opened for each cleaning or each repair. And these tickets are to be referred to and updated at 100% accuracy. On the oil rig, there was a shift change. One person was chatting with another. Information wasn't checked or passed along, and it resulted in the loss of life and the loss of one of the groundbreaking oil rigs. To make sure that something is not opened when it's not supposed to be opened, that something is not turned on before it's time, and that no valve is left open, all of the steps needed to be followed in a certain order that is on that permit, and the communication needs to be complete. Oh, and speaking of record keeping, a logbook was kept in the control room. We know that it was being used as other workers saw one of the men killed writing in it earlier that night. The control room did survive the explosion, and so did the logbook. But the blast must have been a very precise blast because somehow, while every other page was accounted for, the pages for October 18th through 21st were targeted by the blast and thrown out of the book. And, yes, I'm being a little facetious, those three dates were torn out. And, unfortunately, all of the work orders that were requested by OSHA and investigating bodies were destroyed in the blast, according to Amico. To quote the extent of the injuries from an article on gen disasters, the blast destroyed one building in the complex, reduced an adjacent building to a steel skeleton, blasted overhead doors inward, 
on a third building and mangled pipelines running through the complex. Amico, earlier announcing prior to the explosion that they would invest in improvements on the plant, decided not to rebuild. That left about 300 jobs in limbo. Amico did offer jobs to employees in Texas, and some did accept, but they would be leaving their homes and relocating. This left so many without jobs that they depended on, and workers' comp and unemployment just was not the same. Eerily, one worker said, we just don't know what's going to happen to our jobs. On the night crew, we check for hot spots, stop gas leaks, patrol the perimeter for looters. All night long, I hear metal falling. The place is like a morgue. So, was there any fallout from this? In the aftermath of the blast, investigators concluded that Amico had failed to train maintenance staff for the job that led to the explosion. Workers were cleaning a reactor line when they removed the four bolts on that flange, holding a valve cover, and within minutes, escaping gas exploded, fire officials said. So OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, fined Amico $11,800 for three federal job safety violations. $10,000 was the maximum fine for failing to provide employees with a safe emergency evacuation plan for escaping. My thoughts are that should be a maximum fine for each individual that was working that night, maybe even higher, but I don't make the regulations. One of the leaders in the fight for safety was Stephen Watka, a rep for the oil, chemical, and atomic worker. He said that their union would be distributing diagrams about what occurred so that other plants would be aware of the danger and avoid future incidents. There were also two $900 fines, one for failing to train mechanics for the job and for failing to establish procedures that would have controlled the leak. What amazes me is that there was no procedure in place on what to do for major leaks. Stephen Rodka also said that he hopes that OSHA stands firm on the fines. And less than a month later, OSHA accepted a negotiated figure of $2,800 instead of $11,800. The difference was in the wording of the violation. The $10,000 fine had been for actions that were willful. However, that was changed from willful to serious, reducing the maximum maximum fine to 1000 Another condition was to make an evacuation plan for the plant, but as the plant was not going to be rebuilt, that was kind of a moot point. A big part of me has to think that this did not have anything to do with the $11,800 amount. Amico probably could have paid that easily. However, though I'm not a lawyer, I wonder how this would affect any suits brought against the company by the injured employees, and the families of those who passed away. So I do have a couple of epilogues in regards to this. Actually, more like a few. In October of 1989, so this was actually just a little bit, um, actually around the same time as the World Series was going on in California, 
there was a natural gas explosion at an Amoco natural gas production plant. This killed one person and injured 11, and it was caused by a malfunctioning check valve. And also, I said earlier that I did not think that professionals would let a baseball game distract them to the point that they disregarded all protocols. What I found after researching some things further is about a year later, after an article commemorating the first year anniversary and silent vigil that it occurred, an Amico or former Amico employee spoke out in the letter to the editor in the news journal. He called out Deputy State Fire Marshal Richard Lynch, who had said that workers were distracted by the World Series. He also thought that there was proper training and supervision. He said, you do not do a job poorly because of a baseball game. The people on shift work at Amico had to work holidays. We didn't do our jobs carelessly just because we had to work when we would rather be home with our families. The training was, the training at Amico was excellent as far as I am concerned. The supervisors all knew their jobs and they did them well. Also, the mechanics knew their jobs. Statements like these are a low blow to the survivors and people like me who went to the Amico plant that terrible night as members of the fire and safety squad and fought the fire and tried in vain to help our friends and co-workers who were trapped. The letter to the editor was written by Robert J. Kale Sr. So I do completely agree about the World Series. It would be counterintuitive. If they were not safety conscious, they would be willfully running a risk of not being able to go home to their families. And while I empathize with his defense of his colleagues, there had to be some gaps in either training or supervising. It may not have even been gaps at this particular Newcastle plant. If all plants were run in similar fashion, training and procedures would have come from the top down. The workers at the Newcastle plant, then those in charge there would have been working on incomplete or dangerous grounds. This does not impugn the character of the workers at the Amico plant in Delaware, as they would not have been the ones to decide what emergency equipment would be in use, what safeguards were available, and deciding on procedures. As there was a similar explosion at another plant the previous year, it seems that the management of Amico did not learn their lesson. While taking shortcuts on some things might save time, in the long run, it can create adverse conditions and cost so much more, and most importantly, human lives, and then also the material costs. There is also the destruction that the explosion left behind in its wake, ecology-wise. The state of Delaware didn't let Amico off so easily. While Amico donated the land to the state of Delaware, they needed to be held accountable. Legal notices were posted in newspapers to show the progress that DENREC, or the Department of Natural Resources, was making in ensuring that the cost was covered by Amico. One of the notices that I did find was from 2002. In 2006, the state of Delaware commenced cleanup of part of the marsh area that had been covered by a part of the land um, where the plants once was. 
Um, this was set to be the biggest state cleanup in Delaware history. Um, before I continue, I'm just going to say that if I had known about this when I had lived in that part of Delaware, well, I may not have ever lived in that part of Delaware. To quote an article from the October 1st, 2006 edition of the Sunday News Journal, the 15 to $20 million project will remove soil littered with plastic and chemical wastes five feet deep in some places. Success would eliminate a decades-old contamination problem that has left refuse so thick that the ground burns sometimes, releasing clouds of toxic smoke. The land is part of nearly 90 acres along Army Creek, where an Amico plant exploded then at the time of this article, 26 years ago, after decades of unauthorized wastewater discharges that sent plastic, toxic chemicals, and other hazardous compounds into the marsh. Decades later, cleanup from the plant's unauthorized discharges and from the explosion costs millions of dollars. When the marshland caught fire, it would even release toxic smoke. So state officials say the cleanup is going to be financed by Amico, will be expensive and locally unprecedented. So the cost of shutting down a plant for 20 minutes to clean something, even if this is done on a fairly regular basis, would have cost so much less than a multi-million dollar plant being destroyed, relocation of jobs, medical and insurance costs, damage to the environment, and most importantly, the loss of the men who died, their families, and for the men whose lives were altered by the blast. It seems like this tragedy was lost amidst the cheers and celebration and parades of a World Series win. What I also see as another tragedy after the loss of life and the injuries of the changed lives and losses of the jobs is I hope that these men don't lose their names. When I first began the search, um, the research for this article, I could not find the names of the men who died. I could really find hardly anything. This is one of the times where I realized I had to actually subscribe to newspapers.com to try to review any articles and find out the names of the men who passed away in the explosion. I didn't find it in any of the initial articles, which I completely understand. You know, at that point in time, it wasn't known if the next of kin had been notified yet, so we wouldn't want anybody reading that in the paper. But the next thing that I saw was an article that commemorated the one-year anniversary and a vigil, and that listed the names of the men. Even in an accident report that I read, it just listed the term male, then an age. And that's what people were reduced to on that report, was a gender and an age. So I'm going to end this podcast with their names. John Reynolds. Thomas Freeland. Richard Davis, Joseph Tussie, Charles Bowl, and Robert Duvall. 
to me, these men were victims of a corporation that did not take safety as seriously as it should. While I think as a society, corporations are being held more accountable for these types of things, it is by no means eradicated yet. So these families and the families of everybody else who worked at that plant were altered in a way that could have been easily avoided. So here ends the podcast for today. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I will most likely be changing the name um, to Danger on Delmarva. Um, I do have a Facebook page that I will be trying to update the name to as well, um, just to keep everything streamlined. But thank you for taking the time to listen. And please just take a moment to remember everyone that was impacted by that event. Thank you.